Welcome to Ernie Ball's Striking a Chord. I'm Evan Ball. Today, we have Renaissance man John Feldman. John Feldman, of course, fronts the band Goldfinger, but he's also a world-renowned producer, engineer, A&R exec, songwriter, co-writer, everything. And he's got quite the resume, from the used to Panic at the Disco to Hilary Duff to Avicii to Five Seconds of Summer to Blink-182, John Feldman's collaborations reach far and wide. In this conversation, we discuss the early days with his band Electric Love Hogs. Electric Love Hogs seemed destined for the big time with, quote, local bands like Rage Against the Machine and Tool opening for them. But the big time never came. We talk about the heavy disappointment of something like that not working out. And we talk about how out of the ashes Goldfinger formed. We also discuss the various roles of a producer. What does modern producing look like on the ground level? And I ask him what bands can do to get noticed today. All this and more, ladies and gentlemen, the man who's done it all, John Feldman. John Feldman, welcome to the podcast. That's me in my own studio in Calabasas. Thank you for having me. Thank you very very much, Evan. All right, let's start with Goldfinger and then we can go backwards or forwards from there. How did Goldfinger form? Goldfinger's like... I guess sort of a tip of the hat and a throwback to my first band, Family Crisis. I started in, I mean, the first music I ever sunk my teeth into was punk rock when I was a kid. I went through all sorts of incarnations of different styles of music as most kind of musicians or producers go through phases in their life. But punk rock was the first thing that I, I was like, this is, this is who I am. You know, when I was a teenager, I'm like, fuck yeah. And I played in a, I guess we were like a Buzzcocks generation X influenced punk band family crisis. Okay. And so once I went through probably three or four other bands to get to Goldfinger, I knew when I started Goldfinger that I wanted to do something like my first band. I wanted to do something that was just like fun pop pop punk and just you know with it with some ska influence i don't know i mean it was 1990 end of 1993 i formed goldfinger and i was selling shoes on the promenade in santa monica and the guy that i worked sold shoes with was a bass player so i knew he'd be he was my my first hire in the band and then my best friend worked at starbucks in the beverly center so his boss was darren the drummer and so he was the manager. Darren was the manager at Starbucks. So I knew him from my best friend at the time, Damien. So I, he was like the only dr- real drummer that I knew. So he was the drummer. And then Charlie, our guitar player, was my previous band, the Electric Love Hogs Guitar Tech. And so that was, it was kind of a mishmash of a bunch of random people that I knew. Okay. Ended up forming the first incarnation of Goldfinger. Yeah, yeah, okay. And you're just singing at this point. Are you playing guitar? I was playing bass? guitar and singing. Yeah, okay, guitar too. I was doing both. Yeah, yeah but yeah. I never played guitar in a band. I played bass in Family Crisis, and then I didn't sing, and I, I I didn't play, and I only sang in my other bands. And so this was the first band I ever played guitar in. So it started out like I remember this girl Margot that worked that sold shoes with me. Mm-hmm. She came to our first show ever at 
Bob's Frolic Room 3, we were opening for D.H. Pellegro, who's the Dead Kennedys drummer. He had a solo project, so we were opening for him. And she told me after the show, she's just like, don't look at your hands so much when you play. Uh, You just got to look at the audience because I was like staring to make sure I had the right chords because I was like, eventually it just came with time. Like the 10,000 hour rule. I mean, I put 10,000 hours into playing guitar and then I didn't have to look anymore. So what bands are you guys playing with initially? In the beginning, like the first tour we did was with Buck 09, who was from San Diego. They were like a ska punk band yeah, yeah. from San Diego. So we did like the Nile Theater in Phoenix and we just did like little regional tours. We played a lot with the Skeletones, who was like a Riverside ska band and they were great. They were like a two-tone band, really cla- just classic ska punk. Yeah. More, more ska than punk. Um, so the early, early days before we got signed, I mean, those were like the first bands that kind of, I mean, Blink-182 opened for us a couple times, you know, which yeah. was great, you know, way back in the early days. Um, no Doubt was our big, you know, after we got signed, that was after we were on the radio, was like our big yeah. breakthrough tour was opening for No Doubt. That was amazing. Okay. That was like, a, we probably did, I don't know, four, four or five months with them on the road. It was incredible. Just to set the tone, would you mind telling the story how you guys almost got kicked off the tour opening for Sex Pistols? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, so there was, I mean, look, there's a few things in my life that I was just very, that I couldn't believe were happening. You know, going from a shoe salesman to getting an offer to open for the Sex Pistols for their reunion tour. I mean, yeah. they'd been, they'd only been a band for what, less than 18 months back in the 70s. And then they came back in 1996 and they, uh, our manager John Reese got, you know, got the opening slot. So we we played, I think, probably two shows, and then we played Bumbershoot up in Seattle. And the the DJ before us just announced. He said, "Don't throw anything at the band. Just don't, please, don't throw anything." Yeah, so works. I get on stage yeah. and I get hit by like one of those jewel cases, those plastic jewel cases, right in the eye, like like literally, like cut my eye with it. Yeah, and I was like, "All right, if that's all you got, throw every fucking thing you can at me." Like song one, so the stage was covered in probably two feet of trash by the time we were done, literally. So the Sex Pistols were like, "You're done. If you're gonna fucking be this disruptive, you're not." The Sex Pistols kicking us off of like their punk quote punk tour right whatever you know and so our drummer went in their dressing room and took a shit on their catering like they had like this big like you know all the cheese and meat plates and just took a shit all down it and i kind of knew steve jones a little bit just from living in los angeles and 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 right after he took a shit like they're like you guys are back on the tour oh so, so i don't, so I don't know it, if that's i don't i don't think yeah. it's related i don't oh, even you know, know okay. i don't even know if the band really knew that we had done that but like we got back on the tour and they they, they may have never even seen the fucking okay. shit but it's like I that might have been the key like you needed to i to mean or maybe they did up maybe, your punk street cred maybe they were like holy shit these guys are legit let's take them back i yeah. don't know <laughs> All right. Pretty ridiculous. Nice. Yeah. So did you guys get, get signed based more on, on playing live and touring or was it, was it solely off a demo? I mean, it was really the demo, you know, I had yeah. made uh, from, from my old band, I had this 12 track recording thing that had, it was like this half inch beta. It was like a beta max tape. And so I recorded probably six songs that I'd written just in my, I, I, you know, I just recorded drums on two tracks and just put together this like demo. And I had all this history from making records in the past with my old bands that I, just kinda, I, I knew a little bit about what I was doing. And I had a cassette 
you know, at the podium at the shoe store. And so this guy came yeah. in that knew me from the Electric Love Hogs, this guy, Patrick McDowell. And he came in and he bought a pair of nine and a half Oxblood Doc Martens. And I stuck my demo tape in his shoe box. And so that's how I got signed was working at the shoe store. This guy knowing me from an old band. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And Electric Love Hogs was a, a different genre too. Electric Love Hogs yeah. was like funk metal. We were somewhere between like Motley Crue, the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Judas Priest and Metallica. We yeah. were like, like our bass player slapped the bass yeah, and yeah. we were like, uh, but we were heavy. We were like a metal band. Right, right. But I, I, I heard you talk about lots of different bands you guys would play with that ended up getting huge, right? Yeah. So the Electric Love Hogs, we... I mean, like, like, like Goldfinger as well, we had kind of created, and, and it's a great question about like live, I mean, the demo tape is definitely the song. The song is what got Goldfinger signed, but okay. we had already created our own little kind of niche. I mean, we'd been playing for probably a year before we got signed. And so the, the, we had people coming to our shows. So by the time Jay Rifkin, who ran Mojo Records, who, who was the guy that ultimately signed us, he came and saw a show, which was a club that was packed. And so it was a combination of the songs and that. Yeah. But the Electric Love Hogs, like we were like, just wild. We were just a wild band. I mean, we just went ballistic. We were we're all like kind of skateboarders, and we had the Santa Cruz skateboard endorsement. We were like these like just street kids, you know. And we had all this Venice. You know, we most of us lived in Venice at the time, and so we were playing with Infectious Grooves, which was yeah. Mike Muir's side project, you know. So we kind of had this like this thing going on and we were selling out every show that we had played headlining all these clubs. And so any band that would come into town would end up opening for us. Cause we were, you know, in the beginning, Alice in Chains, we, before people knew who they were, they opened for us, you know, tool played their first couple shows opening for us there. The singer tool actually Maynard was our, uh, our mascot. He used to come on stage with a little, um, like a chef's hat and a pig's nose and had, he had a lawn blower and he'd shoot hot dogs into the audience as our mascot in between songs. Wow. He was like our, our fucking, our boy, you know, even before tool was even a thing, you yeah, know, yeah. he just kind of like was, was a friend of mine that used to visit me when I worked at American rag. He was just my, my friend, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, Pearl Jam used to be called Mookie Blaylock. They used to open for us, you know, after the basketball player, you know, Rage Against the Machine. We took them on their first tour ever. You know, we, we would, I mean, it was really like San Diego, LA and Anaheim. It was just a real short little run, but Korn opened for us. You know, we used to share a um, rehearsal space with Korn back in the day. So all these like seminal bands that went on wow, to- Wow, what an era. To become- Legends, yeah, open for my band who nobody nobody remembers. Would you my have predicted band. success, major success for any of these guys? I mean, the look at the, at the time. You know, I've always had. I think I've always had an ear for 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 finding young talent or finding people that are and and we used to because you know there's always a competition of like who's going to go off harder live who's going to draw more people you know whatever it's good there's always a competition so we would be rehearsing with corn and they and i'd watch their rehearsals they were just going ballistic they think the crowd would i mean they're, yeah. they're they would go ballistic at rehearsal and playing in front of nobody and then we would go ballistic playing in front of them just as their as, as our audience so i always yeah. knew that like corn invented I mean, they really invented the sound that so many, I mean, nobody still to this day can, I mean, they're the fucking greatest. The way they sound going off live, they're just an incredible band yeah. that like led so many. So, I mean, I, I knew that, that, I mean, Rage Against the Machine, I saw playing in front of five people at Coconut Teaser and it was like, I mean, I knew that that, I mean, Zach was just, I mean, so fucking focused, that that guy. And I knew that, I knew something was going to happen with that band for sure. But yeah. but I also thought at the time, I mean, all, I'm like all these bands, 
that I'm watching go crazy and have this these audience kind of come up they were opening for my band so in the back of my mind i just thought you know my i'm gonna i'm gonna hit as well sure and it never happened for us mm. we ended up getting dropped by the record company and i went back to selling shoes and i'm like how the fuck did this not happen for me and i was like i mean discouraged isn't a wor- nowhere near a yeah. word that could describe how i felt about having to go back to work retail after all that shit happened mentally that is a weird dichotomy probably for a lot of people in bands to be on stage sort of basking in the glory and the adoration of the fans and then working a you know a, a humble job it's the reality for for so many people but i would it's it is kind of an interesting i mean there is something there's there's an energy that you get when you're i mean and 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 for me, it's the bigger shows are always the easier. Like I mean, the, the, I think the biggest show we've done is a hundred thousand people opening for Die Totenhosen in Germany, which is this uh, this they're like the Ramones of Germany, you know, okay. this massive punk band. And we opened a uh, hundred thousand people, and we've done probably six, probably about ten sixty thousand people shows. And it's like they're they're so much easier because you just kind of. As long as you commit, if you're committed, yeah. like if you say jump, they're gonna jump. If you're yeah. committed, yeah. And when you're in a small club, you're like basically talking one on one to everybody, and it's like you know the jokes have to be really good because you can tell a stupid dad joke in front of sixty thousand people, and people will be like, "Oh, it's a dad joke. That's whatever." That's but interesting. In front of yeah. Ten people. Yeah. It's not as it's not as good. So yeah. But there is something, man, that I think about that there should be some program for because everyone's got an arc to their career, and, and and whether you're a producer or a or an artist or whatever, if you tour and you've had a, any kind of success, then you have to go back to whatever you know, raising raising kids or or just back to you know everyday life when sure. your career kind of has an end. There's there is a real mental challenge to that of like you know I, I have failed. Like there's that feeling of like. Like at least I had that when the electric love hog split up, I was like, man, my dreams, I, I just, I was so focused on making it in music yeah. and your teachers and my parents, everyone said I would never make it. Everyone said. And so when that happened, it was like, they were right. They were all fucking right. And mm-hmm. and, and I, and I, and what am I, what am I doing? And then obviously eventually I, 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 that voice, like I think we both have those, you know, which you, that the the idea of which wolf are you going to feed, the good wolf or the bad mm-hmm. wolf, and if you're going to feed the positive thing, thoughts, then that yeah. grows. And eventually, I said, "Dude, I didn't, I didn't go to school. I, I, I got no fallback plan. I've got to make this work." And then I put Goldfinger together eventually. But it took it took time to process that, like it wasn't going to happen for my old band. I've heard you talk about having a fairly restrictive upbringing. Do you think there's a connection between that and becoming a punk rock wild man hundred or do you think you'd be that anyway a no hundred fucking percent okay. like with i mean look with my kids it's like they pretty much i mean they can do pretty much whatever they want because i mean look they're good kids they're not obviously they're they're i guess my son's 14 so i was smoking weed at 12 um so and they're they're but there's just there's no interest he just has no interest in any of it so it's huh. like he he basically i mean whatever he wants he's He's got right there at his fingertips, you know, for playing video games yeah. or hanging out with whatever friends and doing whatever he feels like. And we go boxing and he's just a really good kid. So I don't know. I mean, I feel like I'm a supportive father and, and my dad did the best he could, you know, when he was alive, for sure. He, it's not like I have anything negative really to say now that I've got children. It's like, that's the best thing. Like you blame your parents until you have kids and then mm-hmm. you're like, oh man, yeah. if only I knew I would have been much kinder, you know? Um, but at the, you know, at the time they, my, 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 my dad was a very, 
I mean, he was so strict. I mean, he took all my albums away from me, thinking that that was going to like remove the um, rebellious behavior that I had, you know, as a derelict that I was as a kid, thinking it was music to blame. And then it was the drugs and it was drinking. And it was a combination of everything. But I mean, the music in the end ended up being my kind of savior, you know, it gave me a sense of purpose and something to do in my life. Yeah. But you think that background pushed you towards a more may, maybe rebellious form of music? Well, I think, I think having a father that never believed that it was going to happen for me mm. gave me enough drive oh. to want to prove him wrong. Yeah. So was there ever like a blow off top with your parents or was it just like a gradual, they, they came to oh, grips dude, with they, like, you're going to be, this is, he likes, he likes loud music. and <laughs> No, there was, I mean, like I said, I remember when my dad took my record collection away. It was like, I mean, that's that, when you do that to, a, you know, an, I was a, I am a music, you know, I'm obsessed about music yeah. and to take away all the, all, everything that kind of gave me life and a sense of purpose. Like I'd come home from school after being harassed or bullied or broken up with or whatever was going on in my life to be able to have music as like the one kind of, you know, lighthouse that gave me hope and to remove that from me was uh, it was fucking terrible. Mm. So I'd punch holes in the walls. I'd run away from home. I mean, it was like, I was, uh, it was awful. I mean, I'd sneak out at night and we would just go just, just destroy. I mean, I would just destroy people's properties, you know, key cars and, and just like, I mean, I was a punk rock kid, you know, so we'd steal cars, break into garages, just yeah. drink, get drunk and do all the stupid shit that I think a lot of kids probably did. But for me, it was a, a lifestyle. I yeah. mean, it was just all I knew. And so before I really knew that music, like at least when I was in family crisis, I never thought it could be a career. I just thought this was really fun it was a, a way to meet girls. It was a way to kind of get out of my head. You know, I, I, I didn't even think about the anxiety that I had as a kid when I was on stage playing these little garage parties and touring. I mean, we toured with Seven Seconds and we did these little runs, you know, up the coast. I was like, that's all I, all I could think about was that. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, what's the dynamic between, obviously, I know you've had your day partying with various substances, and but at the same time, you are pushing your career forward is it is that a, is it counterproductive or did it sort of help you in any way or I'm just wondering? Dude, I remember playing. We were we we played this high school. We played a high school dance up in Lake Tahoe, opening for Seven Seconds. You know, and I was God. I was so fucking coked out. Like my mouth. Like I was like I had the worst cotton mouth. Like I couldn't even. I couldn't sing. I was like, you know, like full cotton mouth. And I had to literally after after. The first song, I had to put my bass down, run to the fucking like little water faucet at the school and just sit there for five minutes and just tr put all this water on my face. It was the worst thing for my career ever. Like there's right. no, like to, you know, look, I, I, I don't know if Sgt. Pepper's would exist without LSD. I wasn't there. I don't know. And I've heard all the stories about it. And I'm sure that there are some people that drugs can maybe enhance the creative process. I am not one of those okay. guys. But you, you, so you push through despite of it. You, you I push through despite career. of it, but but like I was, um, I mean, I stopped drinking and using drugs uh, halfway through the Electric Love Hogs, and so oh, okay. so my success with that band, getting signed and having all these great legends open for us, 
I mean, that happened after I, I quit. So, I mean, I was hyper-focused on music once I stopped yeah. drinking. But like, it was always about, when I was drinking, it was always about the party and it was always about drinking. Music was sort of like secondary to that. It was mm -hmm. like, like if I can get free beer, that gives me a reason to play music. Like, like we used to play um, at San Diego State. We used to, I used to have this like cover band and they just paid us in free beer. And I'm like, I'll be there every week. I don't yeah. give a fuck. <laughs> Get me drunk. Yeah, yeah. Eventually, we got kicked off of that. I was the greatest gig, but I, I ruined it. Is know? that an abrupt change as a front man going from wasted to sober? Yeah. Hey, fuck yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But I was like, I mean, I, I was reading No One Here Gets Out Alive, the Jim Morrison story. So I, I was like my heroes. And even like I love Guns N' Roses, you know, and, and all that kind of like wasted history. I, I, those were my heroes at the time. So I just thought that was cool to be some staggering idiot on stage. But like once you're not bad and you can see it for what it is, yeah. like it's just not entertaining. Yeah. It just isn't great. And you're a naturally energetic guy, so I don't think you necessarily need I don't any, need, any sort of no, uh, masking. Dude, or, yeah. Fucking, if you like put a gun in my head and said, do some fucking coke right now, it would, I'd be like 911. I'd be like checking my pulse. I'm going to die. It would not be good. Even though I drink like probably 14 shots of espresso a day. So <laughs> I'm, I'm probably pretty good. Yeah, yeah. So on top of being in a band, uh, you wear many hats in the music industry, A&R, producer, songwriter. If someone asks you what you do, is there any any specific title that you fall back on? I mean, I'm a so I'm a songwriter. That's what I do. Mm. I mean, that's basically what I'm hired as a producer is to co-write and collab with bands. I'm not um, I'm not a Rick Rubin character who helps. You know, Rick Rubin's really great at, at taking a catalog of songs and picking out a section of a song and saying, hey, this is the chorus. And then another song, he'll say, this is the bridge of that other. Like if you if you can connect these songs together, you've got one masterpiece. Like he's he's amazing at that. He's amazing at pulling that out of the artist. I'm, I'm a, I, I, I write songs. I've written songs since I was 12. And so that's basically 90% of the artists that I work with want me to collaborate with them and okay. write music. So I would say that's the thing I do the most is write songs because I've got a team of people that, you know, when I first started producing, you know, my first bands like show off and messed even the first Goldfinger records. Like I did everything myself. I had to learn how to work pro tools and edit drums and sound replace snare and kick and, and how to edit guitars and tune vocals. I had to learn how to do all that. So my first, probably 12 albums that I produced, I did everything myself. There was no, I didn't, I didn't let any engineer touch my work. And now that I've got, back then I would only have to make two albums a year. You know, I would tour for probably five months and then I would spend three months for each album and the record budgets were big enough where I could afford to. Now I've got to make eight, eight to 10 albums a year, you know? So it's just like, I, I, I mean, what is that? Like uh, 600 times the amount of work that I've got to do. Yeah. So I've got a team now. I just don't have the bandwidth or time to be able to co-write the song, record all the vocals, record the drums, kind of track all the, like all the tracking that I'm doing and then edit everything. I've got a team of people that are editing in the background that are kind of like sound replacing and editing drums and vocals while I'm working. So, um, I, I mean, I make my, I make a living as a producer, but I, I think as a title, it would be songwriter. Okay. Yeah, that, I, I'm, this might be a silly question, but I think I think a lot of people might be confused a little bit, or it's kind of hazy the understanding of the role of a producer in music. 
What's an example? For, for example, so you're basically trying to improve people's songs, but there has to be a, a, a line you cross where you become, you go from producing to songwriting, right? Is, uh-huh. is, is there some gray area there where you're, you're helping them then? Oh, now, now I just helped write the song. Yeah, back when I first started producing records in like 1997, it was really, um, there was a, a credibility issue about co-writing, like especially in rock. Like rock musicians never really co-wrote with anybody. I remember Aerosmith did, and it was like, I mean, that's pretty much all they people talked about. Oh, this song was co-written by, what's that guy's name? I forget his fucking name. Um, Dez? No. Ah, fucking who cares? You know, it's like, I mean, there was no one did it. So uh-huh. I was producing records without co-writing. And then there was a, a line that shift when I worked with um, more pop artists like Ashley Tisdale and um, um, Ashley Simpson, like all those Hillary Duff. Like when I worked with those people, I was co-writing for them because they were more on the pop lane. And so then I kind of became known as a writer, you know? And so when I worked with Good Charlotte, like we co-wrote together and they had a different producer. So it kind of shifted. Mm. That must've been like early 2000s. But I mean, I had already done like even the first two used albums. I didn't co-write at all with them. But now it's like, most producers are writers as well. I mean, most people that are really working producers are also collaborating as songwriters these days. Back then, it wasn't that way. Back then, a producer's job would be to, you know, move the microphone around the cone of the guitar cabinet until you found the sweet spot, you know, that kind of stuff, you know, and that's an engineer's job as well. But, you know, as a producer, you're helping get the right sound. You're making sure the snare sounds the way you want it to. You've got the right drum tech setting up the right drums to make you know the sound that you're trying if you're trying to get a John Bonham big roomy sound or if you're going for something tight and small and punk rock you know whatever you're trying to do the the producer is kind of guiding the engineers or as as I'm an engineer myself like I'm you know messing with the EQ and getting the right compressors on everything to make the sound happen and okay. then I'm rec- and then I'm sitting there with the musician and I'm saying you need to you need to replay that again or, or the, the the chorus didn't feel you could try this different bass riff or I'd you know have a guitar in my hand and I'd show kind of what I had in mind and they'd either imitate it or write their own version of that bass riff or, or that guitar idea that I'd have they'd take it or they'd say oh I can do something better and then it was a you know kind of like more more about recording the music than it was really about writing the music but now it's like like I said I mean there's also producers like Rick that um that don't necessarily move microphones and you know hit the record button but he's more about getting the best content getting the best art from the artist you know and then there's also you know jack antonoff who's a real hands-on kind of guy who's playing i mean basically you know i know jack a little i mean he plays pretty much everything on all of his records you know so you've got a big spectrum of what a producer does all right let's take a quick break come back talk a little more about producing and the different projects you've been involved in and also advice for bands check out the new ernie ball music man saber guitar Our engineers and design team have put a modern spin on the original Music Man Sabre of the late 70s. The Sabre guitar features an Akume body with carved maple top and custom Ernie Ball Music Man humbucking pickups, delivering lively, dynamic sound with striking clarity and sustain. Aesthetically, the Sabre is equally compelling. Its book-matched premium top is adorned with natural binding, which elegantly highlights the raw beauty of the figured maple wood grain. Offered in Cobra, Bougie Burst, Honeysuckle, and Blue Moonstone finish options. Visit music-man.com to learn more. That's music-man.com. 
Is there a difference between working with more established artists and up and coming artists? Usually the most, the more successful the artist is, the more humble they are. You know, the more, the, the, the bigger the artist, the more open-minded they are about trying things and they want to collaborate with you. A lot of times younger artists, like I, I mean, even to this day, like I'll get wrangled into doing a favor for a friend and some young band will come in here and then I'll collaborate and we'll write some, and what I know is a great song that can help get them signed and then they'll take it and then the guitar player that wasn't, that was like stuck back home and couldn't be here will just fucking rip it to shreds because he wasn't involved and then kill the whole song. And it's like, that happens all the time with with, with like uh, just inexperienced writers or inexperienced artists and it happens once in a while it slips through the crack for the most part these days you know kind of 30 years into my career i don't really work with a lot of artists like that anymore but when i was first starting out like i remember the first band i ever produced was called tss from uh from venice and uh and like we recorded we recorded like four songs and song number five came along and then they, they're like, will you help us do this gang vocal? So we had like 10 of us in a group and it's like, okay, the lyrics go white power. And I'm like, oh fuck, what the fuck is this? Who is this fucking band? And I, uh, and I shut it down immediately. I'm like, I can't be involved in it. Yeah. Cause you just don't, I, I'd had no idea. And yeah. it was like, um, yeah. so once in a while you, you, you have to deal with something that's a little bit off color, like, you know, um, and I just, uh, I have to shut it down. But for the most yeah. part, yeah. most musicians are kind of like there to create art yeah. and they want to be collaborative. Yeah. Interesting. I would have guessed that it would have been the up and comers that were just whatever you think, you know, we're just happy to be here, but I know yeah. I would think so too. I would, because me as a kid, Tommy Lee produced our, uh, produced the electric love hogs. And he was like, I mean, Molly Crew were the biggest band in the world, and they yeah. were—I mean, it's like they were legends. And so I would sit with Tommy, and I, I just so all this I just is early nineties. I wanted to learn. This was like nineteen ninety okay. when he was producing the Electric Love Hogs, and so I would just like listen to story after story about. You know, he would tell me about Ozzy and the snorting the ants and the whole like all these great stories, and like he would just when he told me to sing the part again, I'd be like, "Fuck yeah, I'll sing it again for you." Yeah, because I believe you, I trust you, and you've got the experience. Yeah, and so. So it is challenging when kids come in and just think, you know, kids that are working at selling at some cell phone store think that they know better, you know, or think that like their art is just different than anyone's that's ever created music. It's like, good luck. I mean, that's all I can say is good luck and I'll never work with them again. That's the, that's the, that's the deal because I don't have the time or the bandwidth. I'd rather just watch my kid play fucking Fortnite. Yeah. So what are the hallmarks of a good producer in your opinion? Patience and being able to, yeah, patience really. Mm-hmm. Being being able to like deal with someone in that's in a bad bad place in their life, but we still have to get the recording done. So being able to listen, being able to listen to what they're going through in their life, whether it's a breakup or something with family, or maybe they're not just feeling great mentally, and being able to sit there and have a ch- have a chat. You know, maybe you have to go. Like, I meditate you know, I meditate a lot. And so taking them through a meditation or, you know, we do these, these cold dips in the pool in the morning. So with the fever right now, we've been doing cold dips in the morning first. So it's really about like, it's the psychology of getting that performance because, you know, I can fake 
a really good bass part or a guitar part. And it's like, if you're a, even a drummer, like, you know, we can really make it happen even if they're not in a great place. But with a vocal performance, if the singer isn't feeling it, like I have to feel it. If I'm not feeling it, the world's not going to feel it. If I don't feel the anger of the performance or the, or the sadness of it, no one else is going to feel it. So they have to make me feel something. And so if psychologically they're just kind of like, you know, flatlining and I don't feel anything, it's a waste of everyone's time. So I'll stop the session and we'll have to go talk it through and get them to a place where they can feel whatever it is that they're going through when they wrote the lyric. So you've done pop albums, metal albums, punk albums. Is there anything that, that really stands out if you look back across your career, any, any certain projects? Well, I mean, the used were the first band that really took me from being an unknown producer to being, mm. you know, that's how I met Rick Rubin. I mean, I actually met Rick Rubin, tried to sign Goldfinger. So I met him back then and he was, he's always been the greatest, but I remember one of his assistants, came up to me and said, you know, Rick Rick knows who you are now as a producer. And I was like, fuck yeah. yeah. <laughs> Finally fucking made it. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's it's like the used changed my trajectory. And then it was like I, I had done all these kind of emo bands, like Story of the mm-hmm. Year and Cute is What We Aim For and just a bunch of, you know, I was kind of known as like this emo producer. Like I was up for the My Chemical Romance album and all that stuff. And then emo definitely definitely took a back seat to like dance. Avicii came along, Skrillex came along. I mean, Skrillex was part of that scene, so I worked with him kind of in his in his transitional period yeah. when it was called Sunny and the Blood Monkeys when he was doing dubstep and singing on top of it. You know, we did about four songs together, which was fucking great. The guy's incredible. He sang for a band or a punk he was band in or something from first to last. When he was young. He was in from first okay, to yeah. last, which was an emo band. Okay. And then then he then that band split up and he or he left the band, started the Sunny and the Blood Monkeys, and then became Skrillex and took out just took out the vocals and just did his own mm. his own. I mean, what he does is unlike anybody. That guy's so talented at, yeah. at production. He's just incredible. So there was like this transitional period. Then I did Panic at the Disco, which was a great kind of like come out of the emo phase. And then I did Five Seconds of Summer, which kind of put me in a whole different category of, you know, pop production. Yeah. So do you have advice for bands? How does does a band today get noticed? I mean, it's, God, it's so much easier than when I, uh, I mean, easier meaning if you're going to succeed, it's much easier to get, discovered than it was when I was a kid because we had to, you know, make flyers at Kinko's and put wallpaper paste on all the lampposts and all that. So it was like, I mean, it was just really, it was a real hard time promoting yourself before the internet. You know, you you had to be flyering at clubs, which I'm sure people still do. I'm sure people still flyer cues at at concerts and stuff. I'm sure that still happens. But like with the advent of the internet, if your music, if your music is fucking great, it will get discovered. If your music is good, you are doomed. You know, you are doomed. You know, Mm. you have to be fucking great. Like I remember when I found 21 Pilots, like when I first heard them, I'm like, no brainer. I mean, it, it didn't sound like anything else. Singer was so fucking like believable. Drums were insane, and the the style of music I just never heard before. You know, and and that was during. I mean, obviously during all everything, I mean, Facebook and Twitter and everything existed and their, their, their head just popped out because it was so unique yeah. and so well-crafted. Problem with artists, no, everyone thinks they have the songs. It feels like it, right? You wouldn't write them otherwise. You think this is good stuff. If only someone, the right person would hear it. How do you get heard? 
So you so you could you could know. Is it playing live as much as you can, or is it putting videos on YouTube? Well, it's definitely the internet for sure. Playing yeah. live is cool, and like, mm. look, there are bands, and I think there's bands exist now. A friend of mine's in this band called Repeater. That's like a kind of a throwback kind of punk band from San Diego and and they're playing live shows and people are coming to play in backyard parties and there's always been you know bands like Dune Rats and Fiddler that are uh, that are just like punk bands that like still love the idea. I remember uh, Zach from Fiddler. I saw this video of him. Like someone came on stage to take a selfie, and he just smacked the phone out of her hand, and just it just broke. The phone just broke, and I was like, "That's so great." And there's still that still exists, but for the yeah. most part, I mean, the 99 percent mm-hmm. that are just living in this world that are living on their phones like everybody else's. It's just yeah. like I mean, look if um, CKY. Or any like, you know, if any of that stuff existed, if Jackass existed now, I mean, it's like, which it does on TikTok. I mean, there's people that are really fucking funny and doing really stupid shit and harassing people in public uh-huh. and filming it. I mean, that stuff gets noticed. It's like yeah. my, my daughter's on TikTok and you can see there's like hundreds of millions of views on the ones that are great. And those like, you know, like uh, Lil Nas X got discovered because he just had this unique song on TikTok. It didn't yeah. sound like anything else. Yeah. And so that's the thing is you've got to be, and you can be creative with no money and your fucking phone. It doesn't, but you have to be great. That's right. the thing. Right. Like back in the olden days, like when um, in the in the late eighties, like all these bands got signed. Like you know when when Poison and Motley Crue were massive, there was all these bands that sounded exactly like them, like Faster Pussycat and Tesla and Tough. All these bands, and they all got record deals just because they sounded like someone else. So that doesn't exist anymore. You know, you've got to be, you've got to have such a unique style and thing that happens. Like, I mean, people like Billie Eilish, that there's nothing that sound like her. Adele sounds like, I mean, nobody sounds like her. It's like, that's, that's what it is these days. You've got to be incredible. So your, your career, you had amazing career still going strong. Do you, can you look back and identify a high point or a low point? Well, I mean, low point being when my band got dropped and I was, back to working for $6 an hour. That was definitely a low point. Okay. Man. All these fucking old ladies would come in with their with their boils and corns on their feet and just <laughs> want to show me their their medical issues. And it's like after touring the world, like I remember we opened for Ugly Kid Joe in Europe and all these of, of like ma- what I thought at the time were massive events, you know, went away. And I had, I remember this guy, Ricky Rackman had a show on, on KNAC, which was the metal radio station, you know, and he came in and I pretended like I wasn't working there because I saw, he knew me from <laughs> the Electric Love Ox. Yeah. And I was like, oh, hey, what's up, Ricky? You know, like, <laughs> he's like I just need to buy a pair of shoes on I just like went to the bathroom I'm like I can't <laughs> I gotta pretend like I don't work here you know so that was definitely a low point and I mean high point um, two time Grammy nominations for records that I've you know, I mean, the Fever is a band that I, you know, help put together with Jason, the singer, and you know, put on the map and get them signed and get them a manager and really help from the very beginning, and then watch them get nominated for Rock Performance of the Year on a song that I co-wrote and produced, and then yeah. with Blink One Eighty Two, California, the record that I produced and co-wrote on, it's like to have that album be nominated for Rock Album of the Year is is uh, those are definitely the high points in my career. Yeah. So if say. 15, 14 year old John Feldman could, could look forward and see you now. I mean, I I would, I I mean, part of me, I think as a kid, I'd be like, 
fucking sell out you know what i mean part of me as a as just that punk rock ethos that i used to have of just like you know anarchy and nothing matters and fuck authority and all that but then i think that quiet voice that lives this always lived inside me that like you know i remember as a kid when i'd sneak out at night and even though smoke, i'm smoking weed i'm still looking at how big and like when I first, you know, kind of came of age and looked at the universe and said, all these stars and what does this life mean and why are we here? And that sense of overwhelming, overwhelmingness of what does it all mean? You know, like that, that kid would be, would be pretty fucking stoked seeing my wife and like the whole thing be like, holy shit. Yeah. And you must feel vindicated too, or he might feel vindicated. Yeah. I mean, cause there was, there was so much adversity. I was just a terrible student. I was never meant to be a student. I was, mm. I've always had ADHD. I'm, I've always had, you know, my issues with addiction and all of it is since I was a kid. So, you know, it was not, it just wasn't easy and it's not easy for anyone. I mean, I think 16 is probably the hardest year for most people yeah. kind of coming of age and discovering sex and all that kind of stuff. And, and to know that like everything was going to be okay would be, God, I wish I could go back and, you know, pat that kid on the head and just yeah. be like, you know what? Just don't stress out so much about this shit. Do you think if you went back to school today, you might enjoy it? Um, I, it just depends because I'm really, really engaged with, uh, I mean, what I love, like I just got a new computer. So I just, I love, you know, putting the Pro Tools cards in and the memory and like just putting it together mm. and like building, building it up and then having, you know, I love gear. I love guitars. I love microphones. I just love all of it. And I'm, and so I'm hyper-focused when I'm working. But if I had to yeah. go back to school and study um, trigonometry, I, it would be, mm. chances are it would be a disaster. But but look, I as an adult, I love language. I love history. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that I yeah. love that I'm sure if I went back, I love music, that there would be a, a focus that I had now on stuff that I'm interested in that I was never able to have as a kid. In an alternate universe where you never came across a band or a guitar, do you ever think what that might look like? Of course, yeah. Um, I mean, I think ultimately, like I just, what I do is so much one-on-one -on -one people. So there'd probably be some sort of therapist or recovery or psychology mm. or something like that would have probably been in my future work. I mean, I always thought as a kid, I'd work with animals because, you know, I mean, I guess when I was a kid, I thought I would be this uh, veterinarian of some sort. Okay, yeah. And for the record, you're known mostly as a singer, but you also play guitar and bass, all with Ernie Ball strings. All with Ernie Ball guitars in my studio too. There, I, I just actually yeah. played on the um, on the axis today. I was actually recording a bunch of stuff for the Fever with the axis. Oh, it's nice, incredible. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Final question: Did you know only one in twenty five hundred people are born with webbed toes? <laughs> oh God, I'm proud. And of And I'm things. one of them. Oh, you are? Yeah. I swim like a motherfucker. How about you? I can't swim very well. Okay. <laughs> kindred spir kindred yeah, spirits with our toes. Yeah. John Feldman, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to Striking a Chord and Ernie Ball Podcast. Thanks to John Feldman for imparting his wisdom as well as some entertaining stories. If you're up for it, why not give us a kind rating on your preferred podcast app? If you'd like to contact us, email strikingaccord at ernieball.com. Yeah, my kids don't have webbed toes, so they, they skipped that one. Yeah, yeah. No, it's rare. Yeah. Yeah, I always tell them, I'm sorry you didn't get this. I'm you have sorry. kids? Yeah, two daughters. Oh, yeah. okay. And they yeah. don't have it either. Like, I don't want those, Daddy. I know. I don't want that. My kids are like, ew, that's so disgusting. Yeah.